I'm Daniel Wordsworth. I've led humanitarian relief efforts in just about every disaster, natural and man-made, for the last 30 years. Smuggled into North Afghanistan in a helicopter after 9-11. Made the overland route to Kyiv in the early days of the Ukraine invasion. And I led an emergency team into Sri Lanka after the East Asia tsunami. Across all continents, I've seen the worst of humanity. Terrible tragedy in places like Darfur, Congo, and Somalia. Horrors even worse than you can imagine. I've been in wars, famines, and epidemics. But here's the thing. Having experienced and seen all of this, I believe the world is abundant. As humans, we can make a difference. And I know, not believe, I know that humans are good. The way you see the world is how the world will show up for you. And in this podcast, I'll explain why. We'll talk to leaders, people making a difference, and we'll discuss the issues that impact us as they happen. Welcome back to Finding Good, the podcast where we hope to inspire optimism with self-described reluctant optimist, Daniel Wordsworth. Hello, Daniel. Hi. My name's Fitz. I'm pretty much your guide through this thing. Uh, it's Daniel's show, but I'm just here to keep things on track because, you, you know, you tell a good story. But and I go long. You, sometimes they go long. That's okay. <laughs> the, the longest stories are often the good ones, Daniel. Uh, don't forget, if you'd like to ask Daniel a question on anything at all, you can do it at danielwordsworth.com and follow him on the socials as well. Please follow and subscribe on all the podcast apps and share with your friends so we can spread the goodness that comes from Finding Good, the podcast. Now, today. Today. Yeah, we're, I'm actually going to introduce people to one of my all-time favourite people. Uh, his name's Abraham Leno. Uh, I think he's commonly called Papa Abraham, or he calls himself that at least. Okay. And if you think that I go along on a story, yeah. Abe's going to blow your mind. But we, and we're going to bring him in in a moment. But I want to kind of set the scene for him. He's been doing amazing work in Congo. And I think often when, in, particularly in my world, mm. right, when you think about the toughest places really with some of the most profound suffering you can imagine. In my world, people are often thinking about Congo. Right. And that's where Abe's been for the last 10 well, years and I we did something together. I don't know anything about Congo. Yeah. Apart from the, the Michael Crichton wrote a book about it, that was pretty much all I know. And look, I'm not a humanitarian, as you know, uh, but it would be good to have some little some context around exactly what's happening. There. So we're talking about the Democratic Republic of Congo. So there are like two places called Congo. There's Big Congo and Little Congo. Okay. So this is Big Congo, right? It's that big piece right in the middle of Africa. What it's infamous for is that it's basically been in war for the last 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. There have been the highest number, and I don't like using the word civilian because civilian is a military word, but it just means non-soldiers. It's the highest number of people killed in conflict since the Second World War have been killed in Congo and in Eastern Congo in particular. And we're not talking about soldiers here. We're talking about just people, communities. Now, Congo is also spectacular and beautiful and the Congolese have some of the greatest music of Africa, some of the greatest music of the world comes from Congo, actually. So I, I want to acknowledge that first. But also Eastern Congo, that part of Congo, mm-hmm. has had some of the most dreadful human rights violations. The conflict is bitter and truly horrible. You know, I told you once there's certain things I don't like to talk about and uh, sexual violence is one of those things. And this part of the world is, you know, sexual violence is used as an instrument. There's an amazing, a remarkable doctor. He's called Dr. Mukwege. 
He won the Nobel uh, Prize because of his work in the Pansy Hospital in Eastern Congo, where we'd be talking about today, because of his work on fistula repair for women. Mm-hmm. Um, so Congo is where a lot of truly bad things have happened to people. It's where also when you hear about Ebola outbreaks, you're mostly talking about Congo. Right. When you, there's volcanoes <laughs> erupting. It, I mean, it's a tough place, you know, and been a lot of refugee movements in and out. It's one of the hard places, okay. yeah, and very hard for a child to live in, yeah. Now I, I want to set the scene as I bring in Abraham. When you do the work that Abraham and I have done for a long time, what happens in our work sometimes is you're working in really tough locations, and you get so used to being in places so full of scarcity and so uh, full of darkness in some ways that you begin sort of accepting things that you don't want to accept. Right. So a lot of the aid work that gets done around the world, it's its not – the truth is it's just not really good enough and it's certainly not good enough for the human beings. And I, I know Abel will talk about this because he is passionate on this subject. Mm-hmm. He was a refugee himself. Right. And it's not good enough. And I think at the time when we started what we're going to talk about today or a lot of what we're going to talk about today, both Abe and I felt the same way, which is we have to do better. Human beings are worthy of something – uh, they, they're worthy of the best you can give them. So in a place like Congo, when we went in there and we did tests, it was about 70, 75% of the water points that we tested had E. coli. That's the kind of stuff that gives you cholera. That's the worst thing you can have in your water. Yeah. That's like, that's you know, E. coli is bad. Yeah. Yeah? In Africa at any moment, right, 40% of health clinics are not open. But to have the medications, it's much worse than that. You know, you can often see a clinic. I've been to, we went to clinics in Congo, Eastern Congo, and the clinic is kind of there, it's not great, and you see these medicine bottles, but if you shake the bottle, they're empty. And so for most people, they may get to go to a clinic, but there's no medicines there for them. There'll be a nurse, but but again, 40% of the time it's not even open. And so we just said, well, we must do better. And so we're going to create services that are better. And then we sort of tossing around, what was better look like? And then we thought, well, it's gotta be good enough for our own children. Like, why would we deliver water or healthcare or anything else in a way that's not good enough for our own kids? And so the goal that we set from the beginning was, we're going to try a new approach. And this new approach is all about delivering things like healthcare and clean water in a way that's good enough for our own kids and that we can be proud about. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the journey that Abe and I went on maybe 10 years ago. And so I wanted to talk to him today and bring him in because I want to talk about what's happened, right? Because we started this together. He's been there ever since for 10 years, actually trying to solve this problem. So he's now running this group yeah. organization. What is the organization? So the, the, he runs two things, but the, what we're, I'm talking about here is a social enterprise called Asili. The idea was that we would create a business that delivers healthcare and water. And initially we were trying to do uh, agriculture too. And we thought about it like the world's first social shopping center, right? That we would go into these villages and we would create multiple businesses that we deliver services to this community in a kind of like integrated way, like a shopping center, like a right? Westfield. Yeah, so you have like a clinic, <laughs> yeah. you have a water point, you have all these things going on. And and they you arrive in a village and they actually deliver these things. And so the idea of a silly is if, if you were to go into a village in Congo or into a sort of community in Congo, you would find at the heart of it is a clinic 
that is a, like an amazing, it's a beautiful, like we're the only people in all of Africa that painted our clinics with white gloss paint. Right, <laughs> so they are painted with white gloss. They have everything the prices, else is what color? Everything else is like matte, dusty. Yep. Because people are like this is crazy. It's all going to go to pot, right? So you know, make it matte. Like you wouldn't paint it gloss because it's going to show every piece of because it rains like crazy, mm. right? It splashes mud up. You're going to have to clean this constantly. And so we you know these clinics that are remarkable, and we'll ask Abe about them. What makes them remarkable? And then we have his water points that deliver clean water. And we were delivering and trying to create potatoes and sell potatoes to help people generate income. And so we're doing all this stuff. That's called a silly. Now, along the way in that journey, we needed some horsepower. Yeah. And so a silly joined with the Eastern Congo Initiative. Now, the Eastern Congo Initiative was started by Ben Affleck, mm -hmm. the actor, and uh, Whitney Williams. Um, she's a well-known person in the U.S. And Whitney and Ben created this organization called the Eastern Congo Initiative. They are both passionate about Eastern Congo. And we said, here's a perfect combination. Let us merge these two things, a silly and Eastern Congo initiative together. And now Abraham runs both of those. So he's the executive director of the Eastern Congo initiative, but he's really the father of everything that's come through a silly. And uh, I wanted to talk to him because he's just one of, um, he's all been a partner with me for many years. He's a dear friend and I have enormous respect for him. And I'm going to bring him in. And but he started life himself as a refugee. So hey, Daniel, <laughs> it's good to good see. Good to see you. Good to see you. Long time no see. It's long time no see. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing well. Fantastic. Uh, still in Congo, uh, as you know. I was looking forward to catching up with you. So it's right about time. So what do you? Well, I could go a number of ways on this, but maybe the first thing to do is talk about a silly. You know, you were a refugee yourself, and so a lot of what you bring to this is that experience. So why don't you just tell us, Abe, about that experience and about how that informs everything you do now? I mean, I was 16 years old when the war started in Sierra Leone, and I was going to school, a happy kid, you know, having fun with my parents. My dad was a, a pastor. Uh, there was not a lot, but there was there was a lot of joy uh, in our home. There was a lot of sharing and caring and singing all the time. Um, and then all that changed when the war came in 1991. We found ourselves uh, as refugees across the border into Guinea. And that's a journey that lasted for about 11 years. So I was in what we call in Cerulean Form 3, which is a, uh, in American system, maybe junior high or 10th grade. And... For four years, I was not going to school uh, because education was not one of the priorities for uh, the refugees at that time. Uh, it's basically food and shelter once you get in and uh, education comes in at a, another level. So for four years, we tried to settle in the camps, but it was very, very difficult because in those camps, you had to build your own shelter. Uh, you had to fend your own food because most of the food rations, before the UN systems kick in, it takes a couple of weeks or months. And then the cycle is every three months or six months, you get a food ration coming in. And most times you're getting things that you don't even know that they are edible. We are rice eaters in Sri Lanka. We eat rice, uh, like we joke around, like we eat rice like medicine. You know, we eat it in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. <laughs> and then you, yep. you come into a refugee camp where they're giving you bulgur. What's that? It's wheat. <laughs> and so the horrible part about it is that sometimes some of this food, before it reached us, it is expired. 
once there was a, a cholera outbreak in the refugee camps because we all ate the, the wheat and it was expired and boy that was a mess in the camp and so that really uh, shook our confidence in the UN systems or in the way that services were provided to refugees. So my brothers and I, we stepped out of the refugee camp. I sold fuel on the, on the street. You know, if you go to Africa, you'll find in many African countries, there are kids selling uh, fuel in bottles. They buy from the fuel station and then they, you know, they, they sell it on the street side for profit with motorbikes. So that's what I did for about four years. Uh, and then I left every time that the war, you know, there was a cessation in the war in Sri Lanka. I would try to go back to school and continue my education. So that was my journey for an interruption for about 11 years. Now, there is a tourist that comes into Guinea and found my family. I was already back into Sri Lanka trying to go back to school. And this guy finds my family in the refugee situation. A tourist? Yeah, the tourist from Holland. While he finds them in Guinea, I'm in Sierra Leone. There is another war that breaks into Sierra Leone. So everybody is, is praying and concerned that I am lost in the war. So this guy was caught up in this uh, family moment. So he went back to Holland and he kept in touch with my family to know if I had come back or if they had found me. I managed to return to Guinea, but I, ne I did not want to stay in Guinea. The only thing I wanted was I wanted to go back to school. The school that was, it was very expensive. Is these schools that the ambassador kids will go to, diplomats, it's $10,000. <laughs> and we're talking 19, you know, 1999. Right. Um, there was no way we were going to make that. This guy that is a tourist, he offered to pay for my education. And I went to university in Guinea and I have never met him. So one of the things, as you ask my journey, uh, one of the things that informs my life is generosity. We always talk about, uh, talk about abundance. And for me, that is pure abundance. That is, you know, that is life beyond self. For someone to care about a refugee boy from Sierra Leone that he has never met until this day, I have never met this guy. I have never met him. So I went back, no longer as just a refugee, but I wanted to also give back because that is who I am and I wanted to reconnect with folks in Sierra Leone. So from 2002, I joined ARC and I've worked with, I work with ARC in Pakistan, in Sudan, in Liberia, in uh, Darfur. It has been a very tough journey, but it has been a very rewarding one. We set on this path, right? So we said, we're going to do this better. And it was very hard to get a lot of support for it. We had a, we had a co-conspirator called Ward and uh, we were trying to do this and everybody, they said, this cannot be done, this is impossible, you can't, this is a foolish goal. And then we said, well, we're going to do it and we're going to show you it can be done and we're going to do it in Congo. And that's the point of it. That was like crazy. Right. You know, like I remember at the time, remember we were talking with uh, the US government and they were like, can't you do it in India? Like, what you're going to try is already hard enough. Do it somewhere like India. And uh, Ward, Ward is so passionate about this. He said it's Congo or it's nothing and we'll achieve it there. And so I, I want to let Abraham explain what we did because he's really, he made it happen. But uh, that's why the Congo was chosen because we were trying to do the impossible and then we said it's possible. And in fact, we'll even do it in the location that you say is impossible to show you that this can be done mm -hmm. um, so that we can change people's belief. 
But Abe, so so what what do we do? What is a silly? You know, there is this uh, known adage: instead of giving me a fish all the time, teach me to fish. Hmm. So in Congo, it is that mentality that we went in with. We wanted to teach people to fish. Congo has seen difficult times. Over 26 years of war, and it is still ongoing. Over five million people have lost their lives within this. Uh, you know, since the Second World War, as Daniel mentioned. So. It's been going through all of this. And then in the middle of this crisis, we have people out of goodwill, let me put it that way, that have come in to help Congo. But then that help had been perpetrated in such a way that it has also weakened social structures. It has weakened the mindset. It has taken away agency. People have settled in this mentality like, hey, uh, you know, somebody's going to bring in bread. We go in and we consider everybody a vulnerable. So we are no longer looking at the opportunity at those who can be a resource for us, but then everybody becomes a vulnerable. And so even those who could afford the services that we are providing or the things that we bring in, they end up getting the surplus and those who should actually get them are getting less. So. In a, in a way, we're making, you know, new kings and new governors. They can also stand in line and put their hands behind their back and receive the, the goods and services. We did an assessment that showed us that if we did market research and priced our things in a, in a local uh, market order system, 80% of the population can afford the health care and the water that we provide or the services that we provide. 20% will be who we cater for with subsidy. Now, come on, that's, that's no-brainer, no right? <laughs> so we go in, we went in with a mentality of, A, teaching people to fish. And then we went in not asking the traditional questions. So the way we do our research is not, give me a bucket list of what are the problems here. Uh, that was a change because here's the thing, after 26 years of uh, implementing social programs, the community has also mastered how to answer that question. <laughs> it's very funny in Congo. If you went into a community and you told people your program, they were, they're going to ask you like, oh, what is your target? And they, you say, okay, I'm here to target women. The highest number of the population that you're going to get is going to be women. If your programs are for children, everybody is a child. If your programs are for men, so the community have mastered that. But here we went with a flip, we flipped it over and we said, hey, what are your opportunities here? And they're like, huh? opportunities and yeah we said yeah you have been living in this place you have gone through all these wars but there is a resilient where do you get the water they say ah you see that mountain there's water there since our ancestors lived in this place okay but your problem is you don't have that water here so if we bring it here can we negotiate for a payment in the service no no we don't pay for water all right, we are not going to charge you for the water, but could you pay for the services for what it will take us to build a pipeline to come here? Yes, yes, that's what we did. So we found out through those kind of conversation, what are the opportunities, how have they been living, and then we built an economic system around them. We don't just, we know that, you know, liquidity, cash flow, these are all problems we have in a community, but we wanted to make sure that we can also come by their side to help them with income generation activities. So we're doing agriculture. Uh, right now we're in the coffee business. So uh, the belt where we are is the volcanic area and a lot of people are coffee growers. 
and so we are working a lot with coffee and Nespresso is buying directly from them. So we, knowing the community, can then use those resources and say, hey, you have money, but you need healthcare. You have money, but you need water. You have money, you need education. So let's put those services around you so you don't have to go miles and miles to find them. You can get them within this place. Right now, we, uh, we started in 2014. We launched our first water kiosk. Uh, Daniel, I have your picture looking at that kiosk and touching it. <laughs> and now we have 54 of those kiosks. How does the water kiosk work? So what happens is the way a water kiosk works is, like Abe said, it, it was the first one was 20-kilometre pipeline. So yeah. up in those mountains, there's beautiful water spring, like Fiji water. It's gorgeous. But you had to get it to the village. Yeah. So the way you do that is you do one big pipeline that goes all the way. And these villages are like... In Congo, there's a lot of hills and things. So you have like communities living on these hills. So you bring the water down and then you create this network of smaller pipes. And at the end of each of those, you put a kiosk. And so the kiosk could look like a little room and it has maybe five or ten taps. Mm -hmm. And so if you could walk up to it, you'd see this beautiful – it's either like a little white wall or you see this like little mini house. Yeah. And it has all these taps along the side and then people can fill up. And then there's a, there's a woman there called a mama and she um, sells the water. Yep. And so that's what these kiosks are. They're like the delivery point for this water from these springs. Right. And what are you paying for water in Congo? The water in uh, Congolese francs right now is 50 uh, Congolese francs. And uh, that is like 0.2 uh, cents like of two a cents. dollar. For 20 litres. We also build reservoirs, you know, that... Uh, hold a, a huge content of the water and is distributed. These are all refilled naturally. There is no pumping. There is nothing. Once it's built, it's like a solar system. You, you pay for the upfront cost to build them and the water runs throughout. So the tabs that were open since 2014 are still running and providing the quality of water that we have been uh, uh, providing since then. Why do you need an organisation to do that? Why is there not a government doing that? That, that whole, after 26 years of war and there are 25,000 peacekeeping troops in there from the UN. The government is largely collapsed in this environment. Right. And so... So there's no infrastructure. There's really no infrastructure. Right. And the, the water, almost no water points work, almost no clinics have any drugs. It, it was a completely failed system for these communities. Right. So any water you were drinking was making you sicker. Yeah. And then you go to a clinic that may be open, may not be open, and there's no drugs there. Yeah. And then how do you make money? And then the problem that Abe said is there's an aid dependency there because everybody's shipping in food, shipping in all the... So a lot of local businesses went under. Yes. Yeah, because there's all this free food and free things. You know, like secondhand T-shirts get sent there by the million. And so there's all this dependency that's created. So the whole system had just sort of collapsed under the weight of all of this for 20-something years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's the question we were trying to grapple with, which is how do you reinvigorate the system uh, that's there. You, you, said it, you said it right. I think this is a key point, Abe, is that, because it's the point I'm really trying to make on this show, which is that people, in the very place that people think there is nothing, and anyone that knows Eastern Congo would say, that is ground zero of a place that has nothing. Even the Congolese themselves were, were that way, waiting for things to come and could see no way that they could pull themselves out of this. And yet when Abe says... You have more here than you think. And they go, you're right. We've got these giant, beautiful water springs. We just need to get it here. There's an abundance of water actually here. We just can't get it. And so we help them do that. And then with healthcare, 
we discovered by sending teams on the ground and following people around, we discovered that actually people were already paying for healthcare that didn't work for them. Yeah. And so then we could set a price. We were it, the price was like four dollars to do a health checkup. And and the point that he made about eighty percent is key. It's like you imagine you have a hundred people, and you have to deliver services to all of them for free. The quality goes down. Yes. But if you realize that eighty percent of those people could pay for it. You can then increase the level of services and you only have to subsidize the 20%. There are certain people in every community that really need help. And so we could then deliver water, agriculture, coffee and uh, healthcare and charge the Congolese for it and believe that they would pay. And they did. And they pay to go to these clinics. They pay to buy this water. And at the end, I'll talk to you about what we ended up achieving after 10 years of doing this. But it kind of worked out. People have money, but they don't necessarily have it when an emergency breaks. And so we offered them a thing like health insurance. So you could join up every month, pay a smaller amount of money, and then you get health insurance. And so you get a little card. And when you need healthcare, you can take that card to the clinic and get it. And you can use that card to get your water every single day. But what we also could do is for those the poorest 20%, instead of marking them out as poor and needing subsidy, we could give them a card themselves. Mm -hmm. And so as far as it seems to the whole community, they are using the same card to get their water, to get their health care, and they're not being marked as being poor. They're just part of the community. And then we can look after them on the side using charity because the 20% need it. But I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that, Abe. No, no, that's, that's, that's very true. Um, in answering the question, why does the government not do it? We are catalysts to point the government in the right direction because we often think that, yes, the government has the responsibility, but with that responsibility, sometimes there is a lack of the knowledge of the community itself and the community needs uh, as the community knows them. What we have done is really sitting with the community, understanding them and saying, here are the resources. It's not a political uh, statement. It is us trying to solve these issues alongside with you. What are your needs or what are the things that you have? How have you been solving this? Can we amplify it? Abraham, I'm going to lean into the Hollywood connection here. Now, I know you work with Ben Affleck and there's, uh, I guess, a lot of cynicism generally around celebrities and and Hollywood stars uh, being seen to donate money or donate their their brand or their time to a cause. Ben is genuinely involved within this organization, yes? Absolutely. Um, when we started this conversation with Ben, before he came to us or before we met, we were looking for who is genuinely trying to change the needle, move the needle within Congo. And the work that he was trying to do in Congo appealed to us. It was genuine. We saw that he was sincere in his uh, approach. Uh, to Congolese. When Ben talks about Congo, his passion is, is unwavering, like you, you can contain his passion. I have visited with Ben in Congo and he told me it's one of the places where he actually goes and he feels himself. <laughs> They're not greeting him because he is a celebrity. They're greeting him because he's a human. <laughs> you know, they, they speak French, so they don't really know his movies. So nobody's <laughs> talking to him about movies. Nobody wants to take a <laughs> selfie. <laughs> so he's leaving all the celebrity world behind him, and there he can be himself. I, am, I have seen him being himself. I have seen him being the vulnerable himself that he can be. And that spoke to me, and I judge those intentions. I judge that and value that. 
he wants to visit all the time, bring his own family, bring his kids. So that's somebody, you know, I, I, I trust that his intentions have been genuine. You have this story of scorpions, which is amazing. And so I thought maybe you could tell it. <laughs> well, yes. Um, uh, during my time in South Sudan, um, I ended up in this place, which is called Akobo. And Akobo had been, for all the 20 years of Sudan war, it has been cut off from anything that is, you know, life. And, and uh, the hospital had been run down. People only, they used to cross over to Ethiopia to find healthcare, and we decided to go and open the, the hospital there. So I landed with the humanitarian flight. And the night that I arrived there, uh, met the leadership and said, we want to uh, rebuild the hospital. And, it, and it's so hot. I mean, it's like 54 degrees during the day, even at night, you t and I'm talking Celsius. Uh, at the peak of like 1 p.m., you're going to like 58. And then in the evening, you get, you get to bed around 10 p.m. and you start to sleep around 3 a.m. because it's so hot. And I went out those days. We used to use the Turaya, the Turaya phone, which is the satellite phone. And you get to get out and find a connection just to be able to inform my team. Like, hey, um, I have arrived. I got outside to uh, do a Turaya call and I felt this sharp, pain on my leg and the pain was moving like every second moving up i yelled i threw out the phone then i started to look at my pants like try to pull, roll down my pants because i didn't know if i had if there was like a snake coming down to my to my leg and the pain was just moving up so while i am shouting and yelling the the colleagues inside or the friends the sudanese friends they were laughing and i said no let's Bring a flashlight. Let's see what has uh, 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 bitten me. I thought it was a, uh, a snake. And they said, no, we know what has touched you. And I said, what is it? They said, no, it's a scorpion. And then I took a flashlight, Daniel. I pointed the flashlight and all around me were scorpions. <laughs> Hundreds of scorpions. Hundreds of scorpions. So for three weeks, I could not move out. There was no evacuation. I had to survive that pain. This, it, the swelling went... And then I decided, I said, okay, how do we take care of this problem? If we have this situation and maybe somebody else could come here and be strong. They said, well, there is a way of creating an antidote. You got to catch the scorpion and put the scorpion in oil. And while it stings the bottle and, you know, dies in the oil, it forms an antidote so that if somebody else is beaten, they can rub it on. Then I, I said, okay. Before I leave this place, I will make sure that there is enough antidote in this location. Uh, that's that still gives me nightmares. That story, yeah. so I thought I would share that. Hundreds of uh, pitch black yeah. on a telephone, feels some pain, don't know what it is. Turn the light on, hundreds of scorpions yeah, that's, all that's around you. Because what he hasn't said is he has to still get back. Yeah, right. So you got to walk through <laughs> all through the, scorpions. the scorpions. So uh, I just want to say this in Abraham and what we did together and what he's still doing. Um, is for me a perfect emblem of so many things. You had a group of people that set a goal to say that we're not going to just look at the deficit and the negative and the scarcity, but instead we're going to believe in opportunity. The point that I made is we just looked at Congo in a different way. Mm. It's that the most obvious way of seeing it was dependence, volcanoes, Ebola, war, 
uh, I was walking with my when I was doing all of this. I, I was walking with my daughter one night. She was like twelve or thirteen, mm-hmm. and I was telling her this: we're going to have the water, and we're going to do the healthcare, and we're going to charge people to do it. And she pulled. She really. I remember this very vividly. She stopped me as we were walking, and she said, "Dad, I thought you were trying to care and help people." And I said, "I am." And then she said, "But you're going to charge these people for water. You're going to make them pay money for healthcare." And I said, yes. And she said, well, how much is it? And I said, well, it's two cents for the whole, and it's $3, $4 for the, and then she said, oh, that's okay. <laughs> we walked on. Because that's the feeling. You you look at Congo and you would go, this place needs nothing but aid. And for 20 years, everybody said, this place needs nothing but aid. And in, you could show up there and say, we're going to look at this place differently. Yeah, You've got more here than we think. And people will go, oh, you mean spiritual? Because, I mean, the Congolese are the most joyous, musical, gorgeous people, go- like phys- gorgeous people, yep. And you go, okay, they're spiritually abundant. You go, no, they've got plenty of water. Actually, they've got more money than you think. We then do the work to help unlock this, the work of bringing the water, the work of creating a business model that actually brings different businesses together in a new way. That's really innovative, the, the first time ever. The three social businesses are launched at one time. And you need to try and remove the reliance upon aid. Well, that's what we're trying to do is get rid of all of this. But that starts with a belief that we have made them this way. They are not inherently this way. So we do the work. We create this uh, model. And and we're doing it already in Africa. Frankly, it's hard to do these things. It's hard to create water that you're willing to drink yourself to... Have a clinic, like I said, 40, on any particular day, 40% of clinics across Africa are not even open. Yeah, and many of them don't even have drugs. And so we set this goal in this place that people said is hopeless. Like, it's hopeless. We said, well, we're going to create something that's good enough for our own kids. Well, that's just madness. And we're going to do that in a way that actually depends on the abundance that's there. We're going to get them to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Then that was like triple. This is triple way. This will never work, yeah. right? So let me get it straight. You're going to deliver clean water, and you can't play around with water, right? You, it's not like people can you can turn the water off for three or four days. Yeah. People start dropping dead. So you can't play with water. So we're going to deliver water to these communities that they'll be dependent on, and we're going to deliver water that we're willing to drink, yeah, and that we'd let our own kids drink. Uh, first time the U.S. ambassador opened the first water point, we handed him a cup. He said, what's this for? Because no one believed this was possible. The first yeah. time we opened the first water point, we brought the U.S. ambassador out. Yeah. And we said, we're doing this water. He goes, that's great. And we put a ribbon there. He goes, that's great. And we let him cut the ribbon. He was like, that's great. And then we were handed him a cup. And he goes, what's this yeah. for? It's like, a, it's like yeah. eight, was it like 800 Congolese around him. He goes, what's this for? And we said, you can drink it, Freddie. Right? You can drink this water. Yeah. He goes, that's not great. <laughs> right? He's whispering, this is crazy. I've never, no one drinks the water in the villages. And we said, you can drink this water. And so with a sort of fake smile on his face, he filled up the water from the village water point and drank it. And then we all drank it. Everyone that goes there drinks it. It's, it's the proof point. So can we deliver clean water that's all, is it, that opens every single day and is always as good as Fiji water? Two, we are going to open our clinics every morning on the dot at 7.30 a.m. And there are 13 types of conditions that children and families have every day. Pneumonia, diarrhea, malaria. There's a set of conditions that people always have. Mm. We are going to have drugs available in every clinic. And we will never, ever have a drug stock out. 
Meaning you will never come to an acyclic clinic and we tell you, sorry, we've run out of drugs. Now, again, you tell that to anyone that works it out, they'll go, that's just not even that's possible. Just impossible, let alone Congo. Yeah. Congo is landlocked right in the middle of Africa. So here's the, here's the beautiful thing. And I give a nod to you, Abraham. It's now 10 years later. There are 10 of these zones working. You have how many customers a year? Half a million people now, right? Yeah. Half a million people. Two months ago, he delivered the one billionth liter of water. At one billion liters. Every liter good enough for my child to drink and his child to drink. And every morning, those water points have opened for 10 years. And in those health clinics, every single morning, every clinic has opened on time at 7.30 a.m. And in 10 years, not a single instance has somebody been diagnosed with one of those 13 or so conditions and we have not had a drug there to provide for them. Yep. It worked. Even in the place where it seems the most impossible, it is possible to do it. So thanks, Abe. You made all that happen alongside of Ward and Ben and so many others. Yep. Yeah, uh, um, a, a lot of people involved. And, and thank you, too, for having a vision. You know, there is that saying that people perish for lack of vision, but also accepting that we could do this in Congo with all the challenges that we have. And yes, uh, you touched on payment. Why do people pay? To be honest, standing in line and receiving food ration, I rather would have paid to get a food that doesn't cost me cholera than be given a free food that cost me, you know, almost killed me. And so sometimes free is not free. We've seen it in the places that we walk. We saw it in Congo. And there is an inherent lack of dignity sometimes that comes along with the free that is being provided. And sometimes it is also perpetrated by the human, humanitarian mentality. Because, you know, uh, do not give me a specific fund to fund a specific activity. So that is what I'm going to do. You like it or not, that's what it is. And so it is not customer centric. It is not gearing to the needs of the people. It's not looking at the opportunity or what they want to solve. It is what I want to solve. And these are the things that we didn't do. It took us, I, I mentioned that we, we launched our first app in 2014, but we started in 2012. We did two years of research and we were criticized by, by some of our donors, like you're wasting money. Why do you need that amount of research? Because, you know, as a humanitarian, you can write a proposal behind the desk and go deliver. But we said we're not going to do it that way. That's why it has failed in the past. So we want to do it differently. So. Yes, we're asking people to pay, but we're doing this in a, in a way that is human because dignity is not for sale. All right, Abraham. Thank you, my brother. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you for, you know, what you do to create more abundance in the world. Thank you very much. Uh, I reckon we'll leave that there today. That's a, there's a fair bit in that to take out. Um, thanks very much for bringing Abraham on the show. What a beautiful man. And yes. what an amazing job you've, you've both done there uh, with everyone else with the East Congo Initiative. Uh, this has been Finding Good with Daniel Wordsworth. Don't forget to please follow along and subscribe on, on all the podcast apps and tell your friends and share. Uh, help inspire a little bit of optimism. And we'll talk to you again next episode. 